This is a rebroadcast of our interview from February 2018 with Warren Perrin. Warren has worked tirelessly to reinvigorate the Acadian Pride movement through the decades, and most notably, his petition for an apology from Queen Elizabeth II for the Acadian deportation from Nova Scotia was successfully lobbied for. Also in this interview, Warren talks about his days at the Southwestern Louisiana Institute, which is now, of course, UL Lafayette. He was on a championship weightlifting team, which won eight national championships between 1957 and 1971, one of the nation's most successful collegiate lifting programs. I hope you enjoy this as much as I have. Thank you for listening. This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana and the region we call Acadiana. Today's guest is Warren Perrin, renowned historian of Acadian culture and a man who has dedicated his life to promoting and documenting the accurate history of the Acadian exile. Author of Acadian Redemption, a biography of Beausoleil Broussard, Warren Perrin has worked tirelessly to reinvigorate the Cajun Pride movement through his petition for an apology from the Queen of England, the establishment of the Acadian Museum in Erath, and his many ongoing activities on behalf of the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, known as Codafil. Today's podcast is being recorded in the offices of Raider Solutions, a technology company located in the Light Center in Lafayette, Louisiana. Raider creates and maintains technical strategies for businesses across the country, functioning as their complete IT department, from networks to phones, hosting of servers, and a service-oriented help desk. Raider offers a complete fleet of IT solutions for businesses of all sizes. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work, we understand. If you're wondering if Raider can help your business, please visit RaiderSolutions.com. Discover Lafayette is also underwritten by Lafayette Convention and Visitors Commission. With many upcoming events hitting the Lafayette market in 2018, we encourage you to visit LafayetteTravel.com to find out more about our festivals, attractions, music scene, and award-winning restaurants. Thanks to LCVC for its support of this podcast. Warren, welcome to Discover Lafayette. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and as I read the intro, you know, this is called Discover Lafayette, but in truth, it's about Acadiana. It's about our region. And I couldn't think of a better guest to have on than to explain the rich culture that we enjoy here and the backbone of our society, which is um, the Acadian the Acadian people, the culture, and the the incredible ethic that they've brought to this region of the United States. So, um, if we can, can we speak first about your background, about growing up here in Acadiana, sure, and your career at UL when you played um, when you were a weightlifter? So, sure. Yeah. Where I'm, did you uh, go? To, uh, where were you born? First of all, I was born in a little hamlet in Vermilion Parish. Uh, extreme south vermilion parish called henry mm-hmm. uh, a few miles south of erath uh on a farm milk the cow before school every morning uh had a graduating class of only 12 students 
So I, I jokingly uh, tell people I finished third in my class of 12. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and just had a, a idyllic childhood, um, allowed to um, make my own money by uh, using my grandfather's truck to pick up bale hay and hired a crew at age 12. I had a crew of guys working with me picking wow. up hay. Mm-hmm. And um, then uh, started um, getting interested in athletics and participated in all the sports and got into an unusual sport of that time in right. the uh, early 60s of Olympic-style weightlifting. And, um, Talk because about of, that. Yeah, How did you get into that? That was a very influential part of my life was my older brother, Terry, who was five years older, and he bought a set of barbells, and we developed my dad's workshop into a little gym, mm-hmm. and all the boys in the neighborhood would come work out. So I wanted to be like my big brother who went to USL, which was then um, the Olympic champion for college weightlifting. They had won uh, championships for three years, and I aspired to continue that tradition. Right. And the sport of weightlifting, it's really an isolated sport. It's not a, necessarily a team sport. It's just mm-hmm. man against iron. Right. Requires a lot of discipline, a lot of mental focus. Your personal best. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that was really, it taught me a lot of valuable lessons of, mm-hmm. uh, of competition and what it takes to be a, a, a winner. Right. Right, and I know that there's a uh, a movie that's going to be filmed. Is that correct? There's going to be a documentary. Yes, about the weightlifting. Uh, it's being done by an adjunct professor at UL, uh, Nick Campbell, and uh, it will chronicle a period of 13 years when the university team won eight national collegiate weightlifting championships. Mm-hmm. Uh, several of our lifters were invited to participate in Olympic trials. Uh, none ever participated in the Olympics, but it'll be a, a story not just about the lifting sport, but of how it's we included individuals on the team, uh, Jewish people, Italians. Uh, the first Asian to ever come to the university was Walter Amahara, and he was rejected at, at LSU, and he decided to come to then SLI mm-hmm. and was accepted by the Cajun boys and men on campus and joined the team and became a national champion. And he was a legend, wasn't he? Absolutely. is a legend. Yes. So the story is going to be kind of about him and and show the Mm -hmm. success of the team. And we had no coach. We were self-coached, which was pretty fascinating because we had to decide who would actually represent the university and have a chance Uh to be on a national team. Right. We just had to, it was unanimous every year. We always, you know... Mm -hmm. Self-ruled ourselves. Right. So you graduated from. Um, it was USL when you graduated. Is that correct? That's correct. I graduated from uh, UL in '69. Uh huh. And then went on to law school. Went on to LSU Law School. Uh, I'm the first in my family to have obtained a college degree. So of course, um, it was a big leap for me to accept the fact that I could become an attorney. And exactly. Decided that I was yeah. going to give it a go and did and. Fortunately, um, finished law school in 71 and then got a job as a clerk for Judge Cleveland Frugier, who was chief judge of the Third Circuit Court of Appeal in Mm -hmm. Lake Charles. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that pulled me into the cultural movement because he was he had a, a library in his office, not of law books but of history books of the Acadians. And he was a genealogist. And we talked for hours about. And he was the first person who told me about 
Never had an opponent in any of his races. He was state senator under Huey Long and then became district judge. And mm-hmm. he was the creator of the Louisiana District Judges Association. Just a fascinating man of the people. And yeah. uh, Judge, uh, his nephew was uh, Justice Al Tate, who was also oh on the court. So yes. there was some, Esteem. Judge DiMaggio was there. So because of Judge mm-hmm. Jerome DiMaggio of Lafayette, I got to meet his brother, Jimmy DiMaggio, mm-hmm. who was the founder of Codafield. So I'm surrounded by all of these Icons, these visionaries, you know, I was just in the law and in the culture. I spent a wonderful tw- uh, 12 months there on the court. So you didn't really have any interest in this before. I mean, you just were from Vermilion Parish, but your family, you didn't grow up speaking of uh, the Acadians. And actually back then there, there wasn't the respect uh, for the culture that you and others have worked tirelessly um, to, to set the record straight about the Acadian exile. So, so what happened? Did you start studying on your own, or um, what led you to get more engaged in this? Yes, he let me use some of his books. Uh, he helped me with genealogy <laughs> and helped me trace my ancestors back to France. And uh, I just, when I started practicing law, I opened an office in Lafayette with Mike Thompson, who was mm-hmm. then a state representative, and uh, decided since there was uh, no attorney in Erath, I was open a branch office. Mm-hmm. And it took me about a month to realize that I had to talk French to the people in Erath to practice law there back in the early 70s. Right. And so it forced me to speak French, something I had been denied as a child, because when I was born in 47, my parents made a decision not to speak French to me, as they had done to my older brother, who was punished when he started school. Because mm-hmm. it was still against the law then to speak French in public schools or public buildings. Mm-hmm. In 1918, they uh, passed a law saying you couldn't speak French in schools. And then in 1921, it was put in the Constitution of Louisiana. So for that 50-year period, children were made to feel ashamed and punished if they spoke French in public schools. I still remember my mom telling us before we'd go to town, or go in a public building, mm-hmm. remember, don't speak French. She'd and tell that to Terry, my older brother. Two to three generations of children not speaking it really shuts down the, yeah. the, the language. Yeah. But there was, there was a beginning of the cultural renaissance. We trace that back to Senator Dudley J. LeBlanc, mm-hmm. who was from Erath referred to as Cousin Dud. Later, right. he developed a, a fortune in selling an elixir called Hadakal. Mm-hmm. But what he did in the 1930 was the first time a Cajun went back to Nova Scotia since the deportation 175 years before. And he put together a caravan on a train of, fifth, of 15 men, including three priests, and 25 girls mm-hmm. dressed as Evangeline. And they returned to Grand Pre for the commemoration of the of the deportation 175 years before. 17 days, 3,000 mile trip. It was unbelievable. And it sorted, it, it made people realize there's money in tourism. And the tourism is the Acadian culture, that right. connection. 
1934, Evangeline State Park was built, the first state park in Louisiana, based on Evangeline. Mm -hmm. What I came to realize is that that whole movement in the 30s, the 40s, going into the 50s, was based on the fictional poem Evangeline. By Longfellow. By Longfellow. Mm -hmm. Total fiction. Mm -hmm. Based on a historically accurate portrayal but Evangeline never existed. There were right. stories like that. But what the Louisiana Cajun was doing, they were trying to glorify that to bring people to Cajun country. To, it was called Evangeline country then. And they saw that people could now travel with the automobile, mm-hmm. with the highway system. And so they perpetuated this myth that the Evangeline was real and she was buried yeah, near no, the church <laughs> to make the story better and uh-huh. better. And so I came to realize, Jan, that the, the actual history is far more fascinating. It is. And thrilling <laughs> and exhilarating mm-hmm. and frustrating and maddening. Than one poem. Than the poem. And yeah. so Although the poem I, I think is beautiful. that sort of yeah. pushed me into the direction of digging a little deeper uh-huh. below the surface. That's just fascinating. So when did you write your book? Was this uh, the Acadian Redemption about Beausoleil Broussard? He was, if, just so I can say this, he was the leader of the Acadian resistance to British deportation. Is that correct? Yeah. In 1755. One of the biggest myths is that the British deported the Acadians to Louisiana. It's not true. Uh a general rule is we take, we assume there were about 15,000 Acadians that had been there 150 years, mm-hmm. prosperous, happy people, huge families, and they had been in competition with the pilgrims. The Acadians were there in 1604. Pilgrims landed in Plymouth, 1620. Mm-hmm. And that was a competition between, because of religion, because of different ethnic backgrounds. And the Acadians were knocking the socks off the pilgrims. They were beating them at their own game. They were, they were healthier people because mm-hmm. they had intermarried with the Mi'kmaq Indians when the pilgrims had killed the Indians. The Acadians were experimenting with democracy, representative government. The pilgrims were burning their teenage daughters at the stake in the Salem witch trials in 1680s and 90s. So you see there's different, total different civilizations developing North America. But very close geographically. Very close. Uh-huh. Because part of Acadie extended into all of Maine, mm-hmm. almost touching Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So um, if you assume fi- 15,000 people were there, 5,000 were deported to the British colonies in an attempt to assimilate them into the British culture. 5,000 escaped, as did Beausoleil Broussard, and fought the British, and 5,000 perished. They were either murdered, killed, three ships went down, mm-hmm. entire families were, were drowned. And after the war, it was Beausoleil who had been imprisoned for four years with 800 Acadians, and and his wife died during this period, as well as one of his sons. He made the decision to come to Louisiana to transplant that culture because they were allowed to go anywhere but home. And there's a real parallel between what America is dealing with now with the Guantanamo Bay prisoners in Cuba. These are non-military enemy combatants that have been convicted of nothing, yet we've been holding some of them in in this prison for years. Same thing with Beausoleil Broussard. The British viewed him as a non-combatant military terrorist, and hence they allowed him to go anywhere but home. 
And hence she came to Louisiana, brought the first boatload of 202 Acadians, dropped anchor in the harbor in New Orleans, February 1765. Was it our... uh climate and the proximity to water or was it also that this was like an undeveloped territory and they could come here and be safe i guess spain had just taken control of louisiana Mm -hmm. in 1763 and spain wanted to develop the colony and they were seeking people to come Mm -hmm. the arcadians probably knew this but they also knew that louisiana had been a french colony since the uh, you know 17th century Mm -hmm. so where else would you go to be with among french people now Mm -hmm. they first went they had to first stop over in santo domingo in haiti which was a french west indies and some actually stayed there but then the ship refueled and then came came over to Uh uh, new orleans Mm -hmm. so your book was dedicated to beausoleil yes it's his biography Uh uh-huh um, where can people get that? Is that current? I mean, I'm, I'm helping you plug your book, but I mean, for people that are interested in reading more about this, is this something that can be purchased on Yeah, Amazon? it can be purchased. Uh, many museums, shops uh, sell it. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, Vermilionville, it's online. On, on, uh-huh. it, you can get it through our museum or through right. my law office in Lafayette. Uh, okay. It's available. Because when I read about this and I realized, oh gosh, the band Beausoleil, Beausoleil has become such a mainstream term of art, yet I don't know that a lot of people know the actual history of Beausoleil Broussard, yeah. and it's it's fascinating to, to hear about this. And you see, uh, he left Nova Scotia and resettled inland near Moncton, New Brunswick, and he thought he was living on French territory. But the, the British, in anticipation of the deportation, feared that he would, in fact, become a guerrilla if they deported the people. And so they went after them first and captured them and put them in a prison. But fortunately, they managed to dig a tunnel and escape, and they mm-hmm. went back, got their families, and then lived among the Indians and fought a guerrilla campaign for several years. So in, in, he never did trust the British. He, he, in his, he predicted what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And when he resettled, he called the little village Beau Soleil, which is Bright Sun. Uh-huh. And uh, I vi- managed to visit uh, several times and walk the lands. I, I know the man that owns the lands today. Uh-huh. And the reason we know where he lived, because when they burned all the, vi- the, villi- the buildings in the village and the homes mm-hmm. and churches, the uh, efficient British people drew nice maps so we we know where our ancestors lived right so let's move forward um you're you're here you're a um, young man researching all this and apparently uh became involved with um uh it was jimmy dimaggio i want to say i don't want to get the two mixed up i I remember jerry dimaggio you knew him and he was a, a moving force behind the development of codafil the Council uh, for the Development of French in Louisiana. So this was about 50 years after French had been outlawed in schools and speaking in schools. And so what happened? What what was that movement about to bring back the French culture and, and education in our, in our schools and in our society? Interestingly, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That made the Acadian leaders ponder, wait a minute, our constitutional rights have been taken away from us, similar to what the blacks felt. And so that led a political movement uh, 
in the legislature to create the Council for Development of French in Louisiana, which in turn got the 1974 Constitution amended to include your equal protection rights to your language and, and your culture. It's where we have the most expansive equal protection clause of any state because of that. Now, I'll, although I wasn't there at the time, I wasn't part of that, but I'm told by uh, some of the people that I got to know that it was also a Life magazine article called Waning Echoes from Cajun Country. And they predicted by the year 2000, there'd be no more French speakers in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So the combination of the Civil Rights Act and that eventually the legislature adopted this act and we're celebrating the 50th anniversary this year. Right. There is another role that Senator Dudley LeBlanc played. And he campaigned for John McKithen. Mm -hmm. And the Cajuns of South Louisiana not only did they know, not know John McKithen, they couldn't pronounce his name. Well, he was from Columbia. He was I from the north. <laughs> <laughs> so a deal was brokered where Senator LeBlanc, who had a Sunday radio show, oh boy. which was regional, mm -hmm. and it was in French, and all the Cajuns would listen and follow his recommendations of who to vote for. And he endorsed John McKithen. Oh, so that was uh, and, yeah, golden. And so yeah. McKithen owed him, mm -hmm. and that was part of the bargain that he McKithen agreed to support the act mm -hmm. which created Codafil. It was worth it. It was worth. It. I worked for Fox McKithen. I just loved Governor McKithen. What a what a guy. Yeah, he yeah. was really a great governor. So you were you were young when that happened, but then you ended up, if my notes are right, from 1994 to 2010, you served as president of Codafil. So what what. Um, was that about what what type of work does Codafil do? Codafil, uh, it's the only agency in the United States supported by state tax dollars to promote a language other than English. Number one, but it it really was the spark for the whole cultural tourism industry, without a doubt. I mean, it it's huge today. But it's not just the language in the schools, the creation of the French immersion programs where we have 34 schools that have it now. It's more than that. We are, we are part of what's called la francophonie. It's like the United Nations of French-based countries in the world. There's mm -hmm. 55 members. I mean, Boutros Boutros Ghali, the former uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, served as president for two years. It's a major organization. And they meet. These countries have congresses or meetings mm -hmm. every two years and regularly louisiana is invited to participate as a guest so i had the honor of representing louisiana and the united states at mm -hmm. these world francophone congresses in uh paris uh, moncton quebec uh romania paris and interestingly vietnam Vietnam had it in, uh, in Hanoi in 1997 mm. when we had no diplomatic relations with that country, yet I went as a guest of President Jacques Chirac as part of the French delegation, which was pretty interesting. So it just puts us in touch with, you know, a lot of people in the world yeah. that share this interest. And they're mm -hmm. particularly fond of Louisiana because they know the struggle and the threats that were directed against the ability to speak another language. Mm -hmm. And yet we've We've made that today something of pride when it was for so long right. of shame. Right. 
You know what I'm thinking, Warren? When I was in law school, I started in 1980. And, you know, the, the civil code was based on the French um, and, I guess, Spanish laws. And uh, at the time, we were almost taught that, you know, we're so different from everybody else. Everyone else had the common law, and we had the civilian regime. And it was only after that that a lot of the work began to really take root that you've been working on, just putting all this together. We were just, we'd look at ourselves as different. And in fact, it's, it's um, the quality, the, the, the history is so rich. And I'm just starting to put all these things together about the timing when, you know, the, I'm not going to even use the word people used to disparage people from of Acadian background. But to even become Cajuns was a big step. And now I don't even like using that, that word sometimes. I know we're, we're the raging Cajuns, and we're proud of that at UL. But it's the Acadians. They, they deserve the respect for what they did, surviving to come here and building this culture in southwest Louisiana. And I, I know you must be so proud to have been a part of this all these years. When I have opportunities to uh, talk about this to a group, I always tell them, if you're not going to remember anything else about the Acadians, please remember the following main point. They were the first and only people to come from Europe, settle in North America, and not be Americanized. They developed a totally different new culture. Now, you might say, well, how can you make this bold statement? I have a case law to support it. I have a court decision in 1980 by Judge Edwin Hunter, federal judge from Lake Charles, Federal judge. Yep. And the issue in a case was whether or not a Cajun could get protection under the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And to do so, you have to be a minority from a an ethnic class. minority right. and not be a full-blooded American, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it was a Cajun claiming that he was called a pejorative, the C word in the mm -hmm. workplace with dresser industries, and he sued. And Judge Hunter traced the history of the people, mm -hmm. took all of the the traits of nationhood, language, culture, pride, music, history, everything. He said, Acadians are distinct from Americans. And so the case was ruled in favor of the Cajun. Mm -hmm. And so why is that? They left a war-torn Europe, 100 years of religious warfare. They just wanted to be left alone, mm -hmm. take care of their families, and practice their religion. They intermarry with the Mi'kmaq people. Terribly important. All Acadians have DNA of the North American Mi'kmaq people. What is that, Warren? What the, the Mi'kmaq? Mi uh -huh. They were the tr they were the Native American tribe okay. in Acadie. Okay. I mean, they they became so close that one of the chiefs, Marmon Tupu, became a Catholic, converted into Catholicism, and so all Mi'kmaq people today are Catholics. Wow. But it's this paternalistic feeling that these Acadians have toward other people. And I think they brought that to Louisiana. And mm -hmm. I think that's what you feel of what's different about Acadiana. Dr. Carl Brasso did a report based on, I think it was the 2000 census. And he was commissioned to study how is it that so many different ethnic groups in Acadiana lived peaceably alone together. And it was a remarkable finding that he found we are the most culturally diverse region in the United States mm. in the area which was officially designated Acadiana in 1971, the 22 parish area mm -hmm. from Calcasieu to the Mississippi River. It's the, they call it the Cajun Triangle going all the way up to um, Rapids, Rapids uh -huh. Parish. Yeah. 
And so it's just, uh, I mean, we brought the Vietnamese after the Vietnam conflict. I mean, they, they're just so much part of our, of our culture today mm-hmm. that uh, similar to the Germans, I mean, and all of these other ethnic groups, this was always a place where an immigrant can come and get a start. And uh, all of the people from the Middle East that came here because they had been educated in French, the mm-hmm. French had settled in, in Lebanon and that particular area. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, we should be proud of our, of our people here. And I think, I think so. that the Acadians, um, many came from France. Here's a, another interesting fact. Only about 3,000 Acadians came total. If you compare that with right before the Civil War, 500,000 French came directly from France to Louisiana. So you compare, but what happened to those French, they quickly became Americanized. It was a different story. They came here to become Americans. Mm -hmm. Compare that with the Acadians who came here to transplant their culture. Yeah, to survive. Right. 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 God, that's fascinating. Let me see what else. There's so many things I want to talk about. You're, you're um, the driving force behind the Acadian Museum in Erath. Would you talk about that for people that are visiting this area or locals who might want to make the trip to Erath? What, what's in the Acadian Museum? We founded the um, Acadian Museum in 1990 in the old bank building. It's the oldest building in Erath. We probably have over 5,000 artifacts. We have an outstanding collection of material that the Acadian women made, the textiles on the spinning wheels. Uh, Many women were well-known in that area for helping to support their families by making blankets and quilts. And um, there was a mother-daughter team, the Dronettes, became uh, world-known. They're in all the history books and uh, we have their spinning wheels and a lot of their material. And the Tabasco family at Avery Island is very near Erath. They were already marketing the Tabasco in, in the New England area because mm-hmm. that's where the founders, the McElhenney's, had come from New England okay. uh, after the Civil War. And they offered to help the women of the Erath, Delcom, Henry, Prairie Greg areas to market, so they they had ladies do swatches of their blankets, mm-hmm. samples, and they would put them on cardboard, and they would ship them up to New England with the Tabasco, and people could order blankets. Oh wow! So they developed this uh-huh. network of marketing, which I think is pretty interesting. The early internet. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're proud of our museum. It's mm-hmm. free, and we have local volunteers, fifty of them, who are bilingual. They give of their time. They volunteer to come Mm -hmm. open the museum daily, and I'm there once a week. And um, we have several artifacts that were donated to us uh, that were uh, on display of the Acadians from that lived there. We have Mm -hmm. uh, an Acadian uh, pipe stem. uh, We have an Acadian shoe buckle that uh, was dug up on the um, farm where the Thibodeaux lived in Nova Scotia. Wow. So it's amazing when I read about that, about all the volunteers, and you don't you don't ask for money, but yet it's perpetuated. Do you get grants? Like, how do you keep up we support uh, something it through, of this magnitude? Uh, through grants, mm-hmm. donations. We have uh, an annual fundraiser where we uh, induct people as living legends. We've inducted several governors. And uh, we also 
sell the books. We've mm-hmm. published eight books, and all of the sales from those books go directly to support the nonprofit museum. Right. Well, I know we can't um, conclude this interview without talking about your tireless efforts to have uh, the Queen of England sign a proclamation. Um, I don't know if you call it an apology, but would you would you talk about your efforts? Um, I'll be delighted to. It's um, one of the scariest things I ever did, but uh, it it supports the old saying, behind every man is a good woman, and I, I had to get my wife's permission to do this because I knew it would be extremely controversial to sue the Queen of England. And um, What is the jurisdiction for that? Did you have to sue in, <laughs> I prepared, in England? I prepared a class action lawsuit mm-hmm. to, to file it in federal court, and um, I had it hand-delivered to... Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and to the uh, Buckingham Palace, and I gave them 30 days to respond, or it would be filed. And happily, before the 30 days up, I got a call from the British Embassy, and they hired a law firm out of Houston, Texas. Oh, Attorney Mark Wiegand was the lead, and uh, that began a 13-year period of negotiations, which ultimately led to the. Queen's Royal Proclamation being signed uh, December 9th, 2003. But I want to circle back, if I could, to a, a name I mentioned earlier, Walter Amahara, who was the Asia, first mm-hmm. Asian. By the way, Thomas Arsenault handed him his diploma. Thomas Arsenault was dean of agriculture, and Amahara graduated in agriculture. And he told him, he said, you're the first Asian Cajun <laughs> to graduate wonderful. from SLI. Oh. I read in 1988, I knew the story of the Japanese internment mm-hmm. after during World War II, because Walter had told me the story. His family? Because it happened to his family. He was a six-year-old boy. Oh, wow. And they were sent ultimately to a, to a camp in Arkansas, which is how his family, they were from California, ended up in mm-hmm. Louisiana. But when I saw Reagan sign the act apologizing for the Japanese internment and giving each Japanese $20,000. And Walter has his check framed in his office. I've seen it. Um, It inspired me. Why not the Acadians? It's a similar experience. We violated their basic human rights, and the British did the same thing. And the British needs to apologize. They need to get this right. It was wrong. And so I researched that for probably three years. And I got the help from a lot of Canadian professors, law professors, because we had started an exchange because of Judge Alan Babineau. Mm-hmm. Lawyers and judges would go do seminars in Acadia, in New Brunswick, in Quebec. And so we could share information because of the civil code, the similarities with the civil code, mm-hmm. and the language and the culture. Right. So that's kind of what inspired the whole thing to get the apology, but... Uh, Probably the biggest thing that happened, I got invited to do a talk in uh, Normandy, France, at the World Human Rights Museum on Normandy Beach. It's called the Memorial de la Paix, Memorial to Peace. It was built in a Nazi bunker, and it's a fabulous, huge museum. And every year, 10 lawyers get to do a talk on a human rights subject that they're pursuing. And so that gave me exposure to the Mm -hmm. world community. And there was a journalist there who interviewed me. He was with The Economist magazine, which is published in London, probably the largest magazine in the world. 
and he called on the crown to apologize. So that was pretty powerful stuff. But then when I was in Hanoi, Vietnam for the World Francophone Summit, I got an opportunity. I got 15 minutes to make a pitch to get the support of the Canadian government. And it was set up by an Acadian attorney. And I had a private meeting with uh, Jean Chrétien, and he agreed to support the petition. I knew I needed their support. It had to come from the government. So did that took two it? more years. Did they sign the petition, or did they do like a, um, a brief supporting no, they, cause? They got the um, they got a resolution passed, uh-huh. and then they got a bill passed. It was an actual act where they commissioned the government a committee to study it. the issue and uh-huh. make recommendations. And I that see. took two years. Mm-hmm. So anybody in the world could could weigh in on whether it should happen or not. And it was 98% of the people who opined, mostly historians, mm-hmm. said it should happen, that the deportation was against British law. And that was the whole key. It violated the basic tenets of British law. Because everything was taken. It was taken without due process. I don't know if the British had due process, but everything was just taken from them. It, 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 it violates every basic rule mm-hmm. of uh, human rights that you can find, but it it flied in the face of what the petition of right under the British law said. You could not deport a citizen except by act of parliament. So it, it just violated all sorts of British laws. And the best decision I made was never to seek compensation or mm-hmm. damages. Then it, it had gotten mixed up as like a greedy lawyer, you know. So we never sought anything but an apology. And um, the Queen of England, the crown, is represented by the governor general, who is, the, as the queen is the titular head of government, mm-hmm. so is the, a pro, the uh, governor general. We got lucky. The first governor general who was an Acadian was Romeo LeBlanc, was appointed during this time, so that didn't hurt. I got mm-hmm. to be friends with him. He actually came to Louisiana when we had the World Acadian Reunion here in 1999. Uh-huh. So. I had private meetings with him. We could plan strategy. He had to be careful because he represents the queen. He couldn't speak for her, but Mm -hmm. he certainly opened a lot of doors for us. How exciting. There's a wonderful photo of you on the Acadian Museum website where you're holding the framed proclamation. So I I just cannot imagine the joy you must have felt at that moment when that that happened. And it it did three things. It for, For the first time, England admitted they had deported the Acadian. It had always kind of been explained away as a local action not authorized by the government. Mm -hmm. So that's important, number one. Number two, it acknowledged that the British action led to the deaths and suffering of thousands of people improperly. And thirdly, it expressed regret and created a day of commemoration for that bad event. Mm -hmm. We have lots of fun festivals, right? We don't need new festivals. But it set aside sort of like a day of Holocaust, a day of remembrance. Mm -hmm. And we we picked the day. July 28th. July 28th. Because Mm -hmm. that's when the deportation order was signed in Mm -hmm. Halifax. Mm -hmm. And so we commemorate that all over the world in different ways, in solemn ways. We usually do a a mass and a simple ceremony in St. Martinville. And... um, it's, uh, I was, my, Mary and I, my wife, were invited to go to France and unveil a monument there commemorating that day. And we were also invited to go to Maryland. There's a, a lot of Acadians who remained in Maryland. Um, and um, 
we were quite honored, to, you know, to do that, to leave that legacy mm-hmm. uh, of that royal proclamation. Right. Warren, thank you for all you've done. Um, I'm, I'm really, I said that at the beginning, I'm, I'm really inspired to learn more about the Acadian exile and the culture that we have here. But a lot of this wouldn't be brought to light if it wasn't for you and your dedication to our community. And I think we all owe you a huge debt of gratitude for what you've given, because this has been a life effort. And um, I know I know a lot of it has been a, a personal um, journey, but you've touched so many lives. So thank you. And for those that would like to know more about the Acadian culture, I can send you to, um, is it AcadianMuseum.com? Is that correct? And if you Google Warren Perrin, uh, I'm telling you, there's so many different videos, articles about your defense of the Acadian culture, and uh, it's just a starting point. And I'd also like to remind people you're the author of Acadian Redemption, the biography of um, Joseph Broussard Beausoleil, the leader of the Acadian resistance to British deportation efforts, is a starting point for some of your investigation. And for those of you interested in Discover Lafayette, please visit the website, discoverlafayette.net. You can listen to this podcast and all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, or uh, you can subscribe on the website for um, Android devices. And in closing, I'd like to thank Jason Sakura of Raider Solutions for helping us with this podcast today. I'm Jan Swift with another episode of Discover Lafayette. Thank you. Thank you.